If you have your Bibles, please turn to John, uh, the, the, the letter of 3 John. I almost said the Gospel of John. Please turn to 3 John. It is almost to the very end of your Bible. Um, it is the last letter of John before you have Jude and Revelation. This morning, I'm going to take a stab at preaching the whole letter of First John, of Third John. So we will uh, hopefully be done by dinner. I'm just kidding. Um, Third John is the shortest letter in the New Testament. It is only 15 verses, um, only 219 words in the Greek. Now, as you turn there, and before we dive into it, um, as usual, I want to give you some of the historical context behind this third letter of John. And so uh, here, here are some things you need to know. Now, most scholars believe that the three letters of John were composed by the Apostle John, even though he only identifies himself as the elder. He was known as the, the disciple whom Jesus loved in the Gospel of John. So John most likely wrote these three letters in the vicinity of Ephesus um, sometime before 90 AD when he was arrested and exiled to Patmos where he wrote the Revelation. Now scholars also believe that 2 John and 3 John were written together probably on the same day and they, were, they traveled together. They're sometimes called the twin epistles. Now, 2 John, there is a difference between 2 and 3 John. 2 John was written as a letter to the congregation that was meant to be copied and read to them and then spread among the other churches around Ephesus, while 3 John is a letter that is addressed to Gaius, who is the pastor of the congregation, who was dealing with some very specific issues, and John wanted to encourage him and instruct him on how to handle these issues. Um, and that brings us to the purpose of the letter and the title of my sermon. So 3 John is a book, is a letter that is about Christian hospitality. It is a book about partnership in the gospel and our mission as a church to get the gospel to the nations. So that's what the book is about. It is, it is a book about hospitality, partnership, cooperation, so that we can get the gospel to the nations as King Jesus has directed us. So this letter, as short as it is, as small as it is, has had a huge impact on our understanding of the very heart and mission of the church. Now, this letter has helped to shape us as Southern Baptists. Um, you might not know this, but we are a cooperating Southern Baptist church, and we cooperate for the sake of the gospel among the nations. What this means, when I say we're a cooperating church, is that we voluntarily, voluntarily, cooperate and partner with other like-minded churches for the sake of the gospel. It's voluntary, because if you do not know it or not, we are an independent and autonomous church. I jokingly say, we create all of our own problems. But we also have the power to fix all of our own problems. We don't have to go anywhere else to do that. We handle it through the polity of our church body. So, we right now, you need to know that there are over 47,000 cooperating Southern Baptist churches that partner together as 3 John instructs for the sake of the gospel. We have over 3,500 overseas missionaries, over 2,200 domestic missionaries, thousands of chaplains, and six seminaries that train our pastors, missionaries, and church planners. And we do all of this because of the spirit of cooperation that we see modeled in the New Testament. And 3 John is one of those reasons. So let's look at 3 John together. I'll read the text and we'll dive in. 
He says, the elder, that's John, the elder to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in the truth. Beloved, I pray that all may go well with you and that you may be in good health as it goes well with your soul. For I rejoice greatly when the brothers came and testified to your truth, as indeed you are walking in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Beloved, it is a faithful thing you do in all of your efforts for these brothers, strangers as they are, who testify to your love before the church. You will do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God. For they have gone out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore, we ought to support people like these, that we may be fellow workers for the truth. I have written something to the church, most likely this, um, one of the other letters. I have written something to the church, but Diotrephes who likes to put himself first, does not acknowledge our authority. So if I come, I will bring up what he is doing, talking wicked nonsense against us. And not content with that, he refuses to welcome the brothers and also stops those who want to and puts them out of the church. Beloved, do not imitate evil, but imitate good. Whoever does good is from God, and whoever does evil has not seen God. Demetrius has received a good testimony from everyone and from the truth itself. We also add our testimony, and you know that our testimony is true. I had much to write to you, but I would rather not write with pen and ink. I hope to see you soon, and we will talk face to face. Peace be to you. The friends greet you, and greet the friends each by name. May the Lord add a blessing to the reading of his word. So I want to break this into just two sections and we'll walk through it together. The first, I want you to see that if we're going to be hospitable, partner, have partners, cooperate, and see that the mission of the church succeeds, the first thing we've got to understand here is the model of Gaius. Gaius is held up here as a model for us. And I want to just point out several things in verses 1 through 8 that, that John tells us about this man who lived hospitably, cooperated, and partnered for the sake of the gospel. The first thing you see about Gaius is that he walked in truth. You see that in verses 2 through 4, right? Paul say, uh, John says there, he says, I pray that all may go well with you, that you may be in good health as it goes with your soul. He says, I rejoice greatly when the brothers came and testified to your truth, as indeed you are walking in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear my children are walking in the truth. Now, the tr truth is an important word in this letter. We've read all 15 verses. Did you notice that it appears seven times, almost er almost once every other verse. Truth is an important thing, and truth here in 3 John represents the entirety of the Christian faith, the entirety of it. Gaius is testifying to the truth and walking in truth. To be more specific than just the entirety of the Christian faith, it's important for us to note that the truth, when you see the truth in the New Testament, that is shorthand of referring to Jesus and the gospel. You notice that Jesus' name does not appear anywhere in this letter. We haven't read Jesus or Christ or Lord. He calls it the truth. And we see the name later on. But the truth is shorthand for Jesus and the gospel. How do I know that? Well, in John chapter 14, verse 6, another letter that John wrote, what does Jesus say? Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, 
and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. Jesus is the truth. He is the truth. But in over in Ephesians chapter 1, Paul writes this. He says, in him, Jesus, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. So Paul says that the, the gospel of your salvation is the truth. When you believe the truth, so when you believe the truth of who Jesus is and the gospel of him dying in your place, you walk in that truth. So there's no greater joy for John than his children are walking in the truth of the gospel of Jesus. To walk with Jesus by faith, submitting to him as Lord, filled with the power of his spirit, living for the glory of Christ and for the furtherance of his kingdom. That's what it means to walk in the truth. And if we're going to be the Christians Jesus has called us to be, we will model our lives like Gaius and we will walk in the truth of who Jesus is. Second, notice that Gaius, secondly, was faithful and hospitable in his efforts for traveling missionaries. That if something was happening here in this church, he refers to them as brothers that are strangers, and he has been faithful in his efforts to these brothers. So there were traveling missionaries that had come through the Ephesus area and needed to be sent on their way to their missionary endeavors. And John says that everything that Gaius is doing is right and good concerning these traveling missionaries. John says there in verse 5, he says, It is a faithful thing you do in all of your efforts for these brothers, strangers though they are. They are strangers, meaning they didn't grow up here, meaning that we don't know everything about them. But what we do know is that Jesus has sent them and they are on their way for the sake of the name to carry it to the nations and he says that you are, being, you're, you are faithful in all that you're doing for them. Now, Gaius, Gaius was, this means that Gaius was faithful to care for those that came through their church as they traveled as missionary, taking the gospel to the next cities and towns. Again, these missionaries are strangers, but they're also brothers, meaning that they are part of the family of Jesus. They share our faith. They share our calling. They share our mission. They've experienced the same grace and mercy of Jesus. Now, the reason this matters to John, particularly, is because John remembers what Jesus had commanded them concerning the hospitality and care of brothers and strangers. Now, you, we can't say just because they're strangers we can't care for them. They're brothers and strangers. Listen to what Jesus says in Matthew 23, in Matthew 25, verse 34. Well, this is what Jesus told his disciples then. Jesus says, and this is one of the parables I preached a couple months ago. It says, then the king will say to those on his right, come you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick and in prison and visit you? And the king will say, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. Notice the connection Jesus makes between strangers and brothers. They can be strangers, but they're still your brothers. 
they're still part of your family. And then in Hebrews, the author of Hebrews picks up on the same command, and he says there in Hebrews 13, let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Remember those that are in prison. It sounds just like he's quoting from Jesus. Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them and those who are mistreated since you were also in the body. We belong to the body of Jesus. You might be a stranger, but you're also a brother. Now look at verse 7. So anyway, when we show hospitality and care to these brothers, we are serving Christ himself. And Gaius says that those efforts in verse 6... John says that Gaius's efforts in verse 6 are, are worthy of God. He says, in everything that you did, caring for these strangers and brothers, you did it in a manner worthy of God. And that is the standard for our care and support for Christian missionaries. We have an obligation as a church to care for our missionaries and those t- taking the gospel out in a manner that is worthy of God. Worthy of God. Now look at verse 7, at why they went out. This is why we support them. John says that they have gone out for the sake of the name. These missionaries aren't going out for their own glory. They're not going out to pad their own pockets. They're not going out because it's easy. They're not going out because it's it's something that's desirable for everyone else. They're not going out because they're not going to face hardships and persecution and struggles and maybe famine, nakedness, sore. They might die for their faith. He says here that they are to be sorted, they are to be supported because they left behind family and friends for the sake of the name of Jesus among the nation. And there is no greater cause than for the sake of the name of Jesus. That is important. The name of Jesus. If you remember, all throughout the New Testament, Acts 4.12, there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved than the name of Jesus. People must hear the name of Jesus. Acts 5.41, it says there of those, it says, they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. They welcomed persecution if it was for the sake of the name of Jesus. Romans 1, Paul says, Christ Jesus our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship, to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of His name among the nations. It's Paul's great, glorious calling. Philippians 2.9, I'll remind you where Paul says there, Therefore God has highly exalted Jesus and bestowed on Him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And John just throws that in here in one little line. They went out for the sake of the name. And then John adds about these missionaries. Look at that line there. He says, they have accepted, they haven't accepted anything from the Gentiles. What's his point there? Why should we support these missionaries who went out for the sake of the name? Because they didn't expect unbelievers to support their missionary efforts. Pretty simple reason, huh? Why should unbelievers fund the missionary efforts for something they don't believe in? No, God has required that churches do that. 
The unbelievers are not our partners. Other believers and churches are our partners. God is commending Gaius because Gaius understands that these missionaries are to be loved as brothers. They're not just strangers. And they are to be treated in a manner worthy of God. And they are to be supported in their efforts to carry the gospel to the nations. So these missionaries aren't like the traveling philosophers of the day who expected everyone else to support their work. No, it was faithful churches who were to provide for missionaries, not lost people. Now look at verse 8. Look what he adds. Verse 8. We ought to support people like this who go out for the sake of the name of Jesus. We ought to partner and cooperate for the sake of the name of Jesus to ensure the gospel gets to the nations. Churches ought to do this. And let me say something in the negative. If we do not, we lose any right to be called a New Testament church. Can it be said any more clear? If you refuse as a church to cooperate and partner for the sake of Jesus among the nations, you lose any right to say, look what he says there after verse 8, to, that he, we lose any right to say that we are fellow workers for the truth. Do you see that language there? We are fellow workers for the truth. We ought to support people like these that we may be fellow workers for the truth. Which means if we do not, we are not fellow workers for the truth. So Gaius absolutely did what he could as pastor to make sure that they partnered well with traveling missionaries. And third, notice what Gaius, in the model of Gaius, not only did he love the truth, was he faithful and hospitable, but he loved the church. Look at verse 6. He says there in verse 6, he says, who testified. These brothers, actually, these missionaries left Gaius's church and went back to John, and it says, they testified to your love before the church. He was a man who loved the church. Gaius had a testimony that had reached John of his love for the church. Now let me say this. He loved the people that God had placed in his care as an elder and pastor. And we love the church by loving Jesus who died for the church. We love the church by remembering first who it belongs to. We love the church by loving the brothers and sisters who gather with us to worship and serve Jesus together. We love the church by growing and serving and using our gifts for the glory of God. That's why we are here. We love the church by remaining focused on the mission of Jesus. That's a good place for an amen. It's in a country club. We're not here to pat each other on the back and just say, hey, it's all fun, hunky-dory. We have a mission to accomplish. There are people that do not know the name of Jesus who are going to die and live in eternity separated from Christ, not because of a lack of love on, on the gospel's part, but because of lack of care on Christians' part. We have a job to do, and we love the church also by protecting it from harm from those inside and out. And that's where John turns next. So we have this positive model of Gaius. And then we have, secondly, the danger of this guy named Diotrephes. I don't know much about the guy, but I don't know if I want to be codified in Scripture forever as the guy who had the letter written against me. 
Notice there in verses 9 through 11 that Diotrephes is the opposite of Christian love and hospitality and mission. He is the opposite of Christian love, hospitality, partnership, cooperation, and mission. And if you want to know how to destroy the work of God's Spirit and the ministry and mission of the church, I hold up to you another model. Diotrephes. This is how you destroy the work and the ministry of a church. So what can we learn from from Diotrephes in just three short verses, verses 9 through 11? Well, I'll tell you a few things about the guy. Number one, Diotrephes was a man who loved to be first. Look there at verse 9. It says there, I've written something to the church, but Diotrephes, who likes to put himself first, does not acknowledge our authority. Any man who must always be first cannot be a follower of Christ because you have to be behind somebody. The best you can be is second. You cannot be first and follow Jesus. Jesus must be first. A disciple must come behind his master. For the believer, only Christ is preeminent. I think it's interesting that he uses the same word here for first. It's the, basically the, the, uh, the, the, the prefix of the same word that he uses in Colossians for when Jesus is said to be preeminent. He likes to be first, but we know that Jesus alone is first. Listen to Colossians. Colossians, Paul says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through Him and for Him. He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything He may be preeminent. Only Jesus is preeminent in the church. Christ must be preeminent and no one else. There cannot be competition between Christ and anyone or anything else. Amen? Don't be like Diotrephes who loves to be first. Be behind Jesus. Follow Him. Second, He was a man who refused proper biblical authority. Look there at the end. He said he loves to be first, and because he loves to be first, he refuses to accept John or Gaius's proper biblical authority. In this case, he didn't listen to John the Apostle or Gaius, his pastor. Both John and Gaius have been given by Jesus for the health and growth of this particular church. It doesn't mean they're always perfect or get everything right, but in this case, they are absolutely right. Both But Jesus, we understand that though Gaius and John had been given proper authority in the local church, that Jesus alone is the chief cornerstone and the chief shepherd. And he's given us his word and his spirit, but also leaders to help ensure its health and growth. Paul writes to the church at Ephesus and tells them the same thing. He says, and he gave, Jesus gave the church apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, pastors, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry so that the church would mature and not be carried around, tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine. Instead, they would grow up in love. Hebrews 13 says that, he says this, Remember your leaders who spoke the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. And he says, Do not neglect to do good and share what you have. Hospitality. For such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they're keeping watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. 
So what you have here is Diotrephes destroying the unity and health of the church by refusing to acknowledge God's purposes for the church and the rightful authority of John and Gaius here to make sure Christian missionaries are supported. So he was not only, he was not only a man who didn't, um, he refused proper biblical authority. Third, he was a man who slandered others, refusing to show hospitality or partnership for Christ's mission. Look there at, the, at verse 10. He says there, he says, So if I come, I'll bring up what he's doing, talking wicked nonsense against us, and not content with that, he refuses to welcome the brothers and also stops those who want to and puts them out of the church. Think about that. There are people in the church who want to be hospitable and kind and support missionaries like they should, and Diotrephes says, no, you can't do that. You can't do that, and if you do, I'll throw you out of the church. If you do, I will throw you out of the church. Diotrephes here is being described as a man who doesn't walk in truth by loving Jesus and others. No, instead, he runs them out of the truth. Now, here's, here's the issue. This is literally a man who thinks the church belongs to him. He literally thinks this is his church. Gaius has no place, even as pastor. This is Diotrephes' church. It's not Jesus' church. And just like everyone else, when they, do, when they make decisions for good or bad, Diotrephes believes what he is doing is right. That he's the only one that's right. After all, everything we do, we think we're right, right? If you don't think you're right, why are you doing it? Everything you do, even when you sin and struggle, you're doing what you think is right. Even if you know it's not, you can justify it. So here, Diotrephes is doing what he thinks is right. So... The issue, again, is that he believes the church belongs to him. Now listen, when a church belongs to one person, and that person isn't Jesus, then dangers abound. Amen? Absolutely. That's the point. It would be naive at this point to think that Gaius himself hadn't been the target of some of Diotrephes' venom. That even Gaius is, done, is, is feeling threatened. He might have had his hands tied, or he might have been intimidated, or he might not have known how to handle it. And that's why this letter exists. <laughs> John is stepping in going, Gaius, let me tell you how to handle this. He was a man who, was, who did not show proper hospitality or partnership. But also, notice that Diotrephes is a man who is not to be imitated. Look there at verse 11. He says, Beloved, do not imitate evil, but imitate good. Whoever does good is from God, and whoever does evil has not seen God. That's the important phrase. Has not seen God. Diotrephes is not to be imitated, nor should he be allowed to intimidate the church. Now John adds a test here. Here's the test. The test, is, the test for Gaius is this. Whoever does good is from God. Whoever does evil has not seen God. And that's the question. What does that mean? And I think John is basically saying that Diotrephes isn't a real brother. He hasn't truly seen Jesus or met him. Here's why. I want to key in on that phrase, has not seen God. Philip once asked Jesus to show the disciples the Father. They wanted to see the Father. And Jesus replies this way in John, the same author of this letter. He says, don't you know me, Philip? Even after I've been with you such a long time, 
Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. John 1.14 says this, same author. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father. And then a few verses later in chapter 1, verse 18, John adds, No one has ever seen God, but the only Son who is at the Father's side has made Him known. So the point here is that Jesus is the one who must be seen with the eyes of faith. You must see Jesus. Jesus is God incarnate who has come to dwell among us. Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the exact imprint of God's nature and glory. Jesus is the truth that we must walk in. He is the one that must be imitated. Jesus is the one who must be followed and obeyed, especially in, his, in regards to his global mission. Now here's my point. If Diotrephes had seen Jesus, he would know the reason the church exists. And it's not about him. It's about Jesus. This church does not exist for me. It does not exist for you. It exists for Jesus. And for the sake of his glorious name among the nations. Now one commentator added this as I wrap this up. He says it a little more strongly than me. So I'll let him say something strong. One commentator added this. He said, Diotrephes has had his followers throughout the history of the church. And the species is by no means ex ex extinct today. Too many congregations have been held in the grip of petty tyrants for us to regard this sad phenomenon as extraordinary. But the picture John draws of this domineering man is horrific. Destroying unity, flaunting authority, making up his own rules to safeguard his position, spreading lies about those whom he had de designated as enemies, cutting off other Christians on suspicion of guilt by association. The catalog is appalling. This is what happens when someone who loves to be first decides to use the church to satisfy his inner longing for a position of preeminence, for his own personal aggrandizement. We do not know whether or not Diotrephes had any official position or whether he simply used the force of his personality to swing things his way. Either, it was, either way was possible and still is. He goes on to say, There are churches today which are in the pocket of one person or one family dynasty and nothing can happen without the approval of Mr. X because it is his church. Consequently, in effect, there can be no biblical plurality of eldership or leadership no fresh or innovative ideas, no forward movement or spiritual growth. And then he says, the Holy Spirit has long ago been drummed out of office in a church like that where Diotrephes rules. He says, there is only one who can have preeminence in the church, and that is its head, the Lord Jesus Christ. The true Christian leader is one whose life reflects John the Baptist's desire concerning Jesus. He must become greater, and I must decrease. And that is the truth. Now, when what we learn in all of this, after all of this, is Diotrephes is a man that must be confronted. John says when he visits, he is going to set the record straight and straighten all of this out because here it is. What is at stake in all of this is the very heart and mission of the church. 
Our church does not exist in and to itself. We exist for the glory of King Jesus here in Huntingdon to the ends of the earth. And we must be a church driven out of love. Out of love for Jesus and love for neighbor to be hospitable. To be caring and to be kind. To give generously and sacrificially for Christ's kingdom. And to partner and cooperate with other Christians for the sake of the nations. Because one day, here's the glorious hope we have as believers. There's coming a day. There is coming a day when we will gather around Christ's throne. And there will be people from every nation, tribe, and tongue lifting their voices to Jesus. Because we have partnered and cooperated to make sure that the gospel gets where it's supposed to go. This morning, I want you to know that the reason we care so much about the gospel going to the nations is because the gospel came here because of missionaries. We are here in this place because people wanted a gospel witness in Carroll County in the town of Huntingdon. People wanted a place where people could hear the gospel proclaimed that though we are alienated and separated by God because of our sin, Jesus has come to offer life and forgiveness in His name. And Jesus can save you from your sin and give you hope, but He can also give you purpose. A purpose greater than anything you could ever imagine. That is partnering with Him for the global cause of Jesus. Because one day, we will all be around the throne. And on that day, we will not think that we sacrifice too much for the sake of the name of Jesus. And this morning, if you don't know Christ, we invite you to come to Him. This morning, if you've not been living in a, in hos, in a hospitable, partnering way with our congregation and with others, then we ask you to repent. Don't be Diotrephes. Live like Gaius and walk in the truth. And finally, if you're looking for a church home, we invite you to be a part of ours. We're not a perfect church. Amen. But we're a church that takes serious the fact that Jesus is in charge of all that we say and do. Would you pray with me? Father, we ask that now you would be glorified in this place. And Father, we pray that we would be a hospitable, partnering, kind, gracious, generous church for the sake of Jesus among the nations. Father, increase our ability, increase our reach, increase our generosity, increase our capacity to partner with missionaries and church planners for the sake of Jesus. And Father, we pray all of this in Jesus' name.